If you have your Bibles, you can open to Ephesians chapter 5. We're continuing to go through the first 21 verses of Ephesians. We've made it so far through verse 14. This morning we're going to begin in verse 15 and work our way through verse 21. Ephesians chapter 5. I'll begin reading in verse 1 and I'll read all the way through verse 21. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children, and walk in love, just as Christ also loved you and gave himself up for us, an offering and a sacrifice to God as a fragrant aroma. But immorality or any impurity or greed must not even be named among you as is proper among the saints. And there must be no filthiness and silly talk or coarse jesting which are not fitting, but rather giving of thanks. For this you know with certainty that no immoral or impure person or covetous man who is an idolater has an inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore do not be partakers with them, for you were formerly darkness, But now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. For the fruit of light consists in all goodness and righteousness and truth, trying to learn what is pleasing to the Lord. Do not participate in the unfruitful deeds of darkness, but instead even expose them. For it is disgraceful even to speak of the things which are done by them in secret. But all things become visible when they are exposed by the light For everything that becomes visible is light. For this reason it says, Awake, sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Therefore, be careful how you walk, not as unwise men, but as wise, making the most of your time because the days are evil. So then do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And do not get drunk with wine, for that is dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit, speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody with your heart to the Lord, always giving thanks for all things in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ to God, even the Father, and be subject to one another in the fear of Christ. Generally speaking, The amount of thought and time and energy and effort that we put into something is usually a good reflection of how much we value it, how much value we place on it. For example, take an athlete who values an Olympic medal. He has set his hope on an Olympic medal. And think about the way that his life is transformed by what he values. He pays attention to every detail of his diet. He pays attention to every last minute aspect of his training regimen. He cuts out all unnecessary extracurricular activities in order to be able to train himself in the exact way that he needs to to achieve what he values, an Olympic gold medal. Or think of a concert musician In preparation for an upcoming performance with an orchestra, they will spend 
hours and hours and hours playing the same section of the music until they master it. Why? Why do they take so much time and put so much energy and take such care with regard to their performance? Because they value it. It's important to them. Almost always, the amount of time and energy and effort we put into something is a good reflection of what we value. Which raises the question, what would your life suggest? If you were to say, I value something because I see these evidences of it in my life, what things do you value? Well, there is nothing more valuable than a life. And there is nothing more important than how we spend our life. God has given each of us breath and strength and a certain number of days in order to live for him, to glorify him, and to enjoy him. That is our goal in life. That is what is of greatest value, whether you believe it or not. The thing that is most important in your life is how you spend your life. Is it for God or is it for something else? The essence of sin is that we are careless and thoughtless and foolish with the life that God gives us. Naturally, all of us, the propensity of our sinful flesh is to spend our time and our energy and our thoughts on worthless things. Without regard, without regard for God, without regard for his glory, for his purposes, for his kingdom, that is what sinful flesh does. It exchanges the glory of God in order to live for worthless things. But the beauty of redemption, the beauty of what Christ does in the life of the believer is that by his grace, he rescues us out of worthless pursuits. Galatians 1 says he has rescued us from this present evil age. He rescues us out of worthless pursuits. He makes us a new creation, and he gives us new aims and new goals and new enabling power to begin to live for what really matters. The verses we're considering this morning have to do with spending our life wisely, not despising the value of the life that God has given you, not wasting it away on worthless things, but spending it wisely and intentionally for his sake. The last couple of times that we've been in Ephesians, we've considered Paul's exhortation to us to be imitators of God. That's found in verse 1. Hopefully you'll remember there in chapter 5, verse 1. Therefore, be imitators of God, we're told. And we've seen so far that there are at least two aspects to what it means to imitate God, as Paul explains it here in Ephesians 5. First, we imitate God by walking in love. We saw that in the first part of the chapter, specifically in verse 2. And then second, we imitate God by walking in the light, which is what we saw last week, and that's down in verse 8. You are formerly darkness, now you are light. Walk as children of light. We walk in love and we walk in light. That is how we imitate God. And this morning we're considering a third aspect of what it is to be imitators of God, specifically to walk in wisdom. And we see that down in verse 15. Therefore, be careful how you walk, not as unwise men, but as wise. Be careful how you walk, not as unwise men, but as wise. We'll see that there are mentioned here two 
primary, specific aspects of what it looks like to walk wisely. Now, Paul is not, in these verses, giving a full explanation and theological treatise on what wisdom is, but he is telling you, if you're a Christian, if you're anybody really, these are things that you must have in mind if you are going to walk wisely. So two aspects of what a wise walk looks like. First, in verses 15 to 17, a wise walk is circumspect. A wise walk is circumspect in verses 15 to 17. And then second, in verses 18 to 21, a wise walk is spirit-filled. A wise walk is spirit-filled in verses 18 to 21. So first, in verses 15 to 17, a wise walk is circumspect. Once again, he says in verses 15 to 17, Therefore, be careful how you walk. Not as unwise men, but as wise, making the most of your time because the days are evil. So then do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. A wise walk is a circumspect walk. That word circumspect is not in the New American Standard translation, but it is in the King James translation. And I think it accurately reflects the meaning of these first couple of verses. The Webster Dictionary defines circumspect as careful to consider all circumstances and all possible consequences. Circumspect is careful to consider all circumstances and all possible consequences. Paul is telling us to walk circumspectly. First, kind of what sets the tone for all of that, the reason for it is because we walk in days that are evil. Verses 16, verse 16, the second half, he says, because the days are evil. A wise walk, a circumspect walk that understands circumstances and all possible consequences, a wise walk means a realistic awareness of, of our circumstances in this present age. A realistic understanding that we live in days that are defined by God in his word as evil. This isn't the first time Paul has talked about evil days in the book of Ephesians. Back in Ephesians 2, he talks about how the prince of the power of the air, the spirit uh, that is now working in the sons of disobedience, has primary influence over those who are outside of Christ. He is, in a sense, ruling over the sons of this age, all who are not in Christ. And then in Ephesians 6, when he talks about the the unseen spiritual forces that are at work. He says, this day that we live in, in in Ephesians chapter 6, this is the evil day. Again, I referenced this just a few moments ago, but in Galatians 1, he calls this current age in which we live this present evil age. Over and over again, the New Testament tells us we live in an evil age. The days are evil. That doesn't mean that there are no good things in this world. It doesn't mean that there are no virtues to be seen in the lives even of those who are without Christ. There are certain evidences of God's common grace in people and in circumstances. Not everything around us is evil in that sense. But at the foundational level, the spirit of this age that influences and rules over all that is outside of Christ... That spiritual influence is the the prince of darkness himself. And all who are under his influence are necessarily in opposition to the kingdom of Christ. 
So the spirit of darkness is ruling over this age under the sovereign wisdom and love of Christ. He determines that Satan is allowed, permitted to rule to a certain degree in this age. But he rules over this age and he is incessantly at work to oppose the kingdom of Christ and the cause of Christ. And what this means then is that Christians in this world live in enemy territory. There are endless, whether you believe it or not, this is true, it is explicitly stated in God's word that there are endless, unseen efforts being made to cause you to waste your life and to conform your life to the patterns and the spiritual influences of this world. And if we are unaware of that, if we're not circumspectly living, understanding the circumstances in which we live, then we will be very, very vulnerable. I've made, over a number of years, several trips to Latin America, and I am the stereotypical naive tourist. And so while in Latin America, often in the cities, I would be in a very dangerous position, situation, but I had no idea that I was in danger. I can remember one time we were on the street in downtown Lima, one of the uh, fairly bad parts of town, and we were recording an interview, and I had my camera out as I recorded the interview, and completely unknown to me, apparently, a man had noticed that I had this camera out, and he thought that he would come and steal it, and so he began to approach me. I had no idea about it, but I was with a man named Eddie, and Eddie, my wife was always very happy when I traveled with Eddie, because Eddie knew what he was doing in Lima. He was raised there. He understood how things worked. He understood the dangers of the streets. And Eddie immediately picked up on what this guy was doing. He saw him approaching. He immediately met eye contact with him. He put himself between me and this guy who was approaching, and that was all it took to deter the man, to turn him away, simply because Eddie was aware of the danger and was careful, was alert. He diverted the danger. That's what Paul is saying. Walk circumspectly. The days are evil. Don't be naive about the forces and influences that are at work to cause you to waste your life rather than to spend it for Christ. What does that look like? What does it look like to walk carefully because the days are evil? Well, he says in verse 17, So then, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. Don't be foolish, don't be ignorant, don't be unaware of what God is doing, but understand what the will of the Lord is. When Paul talks about understanding the will of the Lord, there are possibly many things that come to mind when we think about understanding God's will for us. When Paul talks about it, he's not talking about something that we're waiting for God to show us or to reveal to us. When Paul talks about God's will, he's talking about what God has already shown us what he's already revealed to us. God's will in that sense, in the sense that Paul is using it here in this verse, has already been given to us as clearly as we could ever need it on the pages of the scriptures. Everything we need to know about what God is doing in this world and how he wants us to live in the midst of it is found on the pages of the scriptures. In one sense, when Paul refers to the will of God, he is referring to the big picture concept of God's will. What God is doing on a grand scheme level, his big plans for creation. 
We read this in Ephesians 1. If you want to turn back just a couple pages in, in, your, in your Bibles to Ephesians 1 in verses 9 and 10. God's will here refers to his big picture plan, what he is doing in this world. In verse 9, he says, He made known to us the mystery of his will, which is according to his kind intention, which he purposed in him, that is Christ, with a view to an administration suitable to the fullness of the times, that is, the summing up of all things in Christ, things in, heaven, in the heavens and things on the earth. What is God's will? How can we understand God's will? We can understand what God is doing in the world. He is summing up everything. He will one day bring all things under subjection to the Lord Jesus Christ, who is the only true king. And what Paul is saying here is don't be foolish. Don't live like that were not the case. Don't live like Christ were not the king and like all things were not going to be summed up under his rule and his reign. Don't be foolish. But understand, this is God's will. This is what God is doing in a world that often seems so ruined by evil. God is working to sum up all things under the headship of the Lord Jesus. And then at other times when the scriptures speak of the will of God, including the Apostle Paul, it's referring more specifically to God's desire for our particular life. So in 1 Thessalonians 4, For this is the will of God, your sanctification. What does God want for you? your holiness, for you to be made like Jesus. 2 Thessalonians 5, In everything give thanks, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. So sometimes when we're talking about the will of God, it's the big picture plan of God, all that he is doing and will certainly bring about through Christ. And then at other times it's referring more specifically to, okay, how should we then live as individuals in this world? What's God's will for me? We look to the scriptures to understand what God is doing. And we look to the scriptures to understand how God wants us to live. Paul is saying, don't be foolish. Don't live in ignorance of what God has revealed to you. Don't be darkened to believe the lies of this world, but take God at his word, understand his will, and be careful because the days are evil. And when we do that, when we walk circumspectly, understanding that the days are evil, when we are careful and walk with an understanding of God's will for us, then it's in that way that we will be enabled to make the most of our time. Verse 16, Paul exhorts us, making the most of your time. A more literal translation would be redeeming the time, buying back the time. It's the same exact word that's used in Galatians in reference to Christ redeeming us from the curse of the law. He literally purchased us back from our bondage to the law of God and the curse of the law. We were held there in slavery because of our sin, but Christ paid the price by his blood to redeem us, to purchase us back to himself out of our sin. And so the question here is, what do we purchase back our time from? Or from whom? Or from what? Do we purchase back our time? And again, I think we have to understand the backdrop. The days are evil. What are we purchasing our time back from? From the evil days. Apart from the grace of God intervening in this world and in our lives, all time and all opportunities that are given are automatically used for evil, for purposes that contradict God's glory. 
Unless God works by his grace, every moment of every day is spent by us in pursuit of things that stand in complete contrast to him. But grace has intervened into our lives as believers. God has rescued us from this present evil age. He's redeemed us in Christ. He's brought us out of spiritual darkness and ignorance, and he has made us a new creation so that we can live for him. And because grace has intervened in our lives through Christ, what Paul is saying is we are to take the time and the opportunities and the circumstances that would have been spent on the promotion of evil, and we are to use them for the promotion of God's kingdom and his glory. We are to redeem them. We are to take what would be used against God, and we are to use them for him and for his glory, for his kingdom. So then bringing these verses together, a wise walk is circumspect. It requires that we understand our circumstances, the days are evil, and it requires that as we walk through these evil days, we do so with an understanding of God's will, as he's revealed it in his word, and that we take advantage of every opportunity given to us to serve Christ and promote his purposes. Jonathan Edwards once put it this way in his resolutions, resolved never to lose one moment of time, but to improve it the most profitable way I possibly can. Never to waste one moment, but to use it in the most profitable way that I possibly can. In the fall of 2015, my granddad was diagnosed with ALS, or Lou Gehrig's disease, which if you're familiar with it, you know is a horrible disease, very debilitating. They told my granddad that he probably had anywhere from two to ten years to live. And at this point, he was already an older man in his late 70s. And so he assumed his lifespan was probably on the shorter end of that spectrum. My grandfather was a Christian, and soon after his diagnosis, one of the things he did very early on was he made a long list of people that he was burdened to share the gospel with. And over the course of the next couple of years of his life, he worked his way through that list, taking advantage of every opportunity he had to share the gospel. The last time I saw my grandfather was on December 31st, 2018, just over three years after his diagnosis. By that point, his voice was very faint. I had to lean in close to be able to hear what he was saying. But as I leaned in and I listened to his voice, I could tell that he was happy, and he told me that the week prior, he'd been able to share the gospel with the very last person on his list, which was my grandmother on the other side of the family. Five days later, January 5th, my grandfather went home to be with the Lord. My granddad was not a perfect man. I saw him in moments of deep discouragement and sadness in his sickness. But he took what very easily could have been an opportunity for evil with his disease. Complaining, bitterness, resentment, whatever comes with it. And instead he redeemed it. And he used it for the cause of Christ. He was determined that he would take the limited time that he had left, the limited opportunities, and rather than using them in service of self, he would use them for the purpose of Christ and his kingdom. And perhaps working, walking circumspectly and wisely in our lives, redeeming the time in that way, might look like that in one way or another, a disease that we take and use as an opportunity for Christ's glory in whatever ways we're able but it may also look like the very simple day-to-day opportunities and circumstances that we have. It could be something as simple as taking a disagreement 
at work that could potentially be used for furthering strife and conflict and redeeming it by showing grace and patience. Could be something as simple as taking your child's misbehavior that could be used as an opportunity for evil by allowing it to cause you to be angry, impatient, harsh, and instead redeeming it by pointing your child to the patience and the mercy and the forgiveness of Christ. Could be as simple as taking an opportunity around friends that could be used to join along with them in their crude laughter and jokes and immoral speech and conduct, and instead redeeming the opportunity by speaking truth for Christ's sake. It could be taking an opportunity that you have with your time to be lazy or idle and redeeming it and using it in whatever way you can to serve others and promote the cause of Christ. There are numerous opportunities given to us. We all have a limited amount of time in this life before we pass into the presence of our King. What Paul is saying is take advantage of every single opportunity given to you. To not spend it on self, but to spend it on Christ. Redeem the time, walk circumspectly, understand the circumstances, and make the most of it for Christ's sake. That's the first aspect of a wise life. It's a walk that is circumspect. And then secondly, a wise walk is spirit-filled. Paul says in verses 18 to 21, I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened. That's a completely wrong chapter. Chapter 5, verse 18. And do not get drunk with wine, for that is dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit, speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody with your heart to the Lord, always giving thanks for all things in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ to God, even the Father, and be subject to one another in the fear of Christ. A wise walk is spirit-filled. That's the primary command in these verses in verse 18. Don't be drunk with wine, but be filled with the Spirit. So what does it mean to be filled with the Spirit? Well, we know that if we are in Christ, the moment that we heard and believed the gospel, according to Ephesians chapter 1, we were given the Holy Spirit. We were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. So Paul is not saying that there are certain Christians who have the Holy Spirit and certain Christians who still need to get the Holy Spirit. We all have the Holy Spirit the moment we believe the gospel, according to Paul in chapter 1 of Ephesians. But the distinction is that not all believers experience the influence and the effects and the fruitfulness of the Spirit in the same measure. We all have the Holy Spirit. He is given to us by our Father as a gift, God himself indwelling the believer. But not all of us experience his influence and his effects to the same measure. To be filled with the Holy Spirit means that we live a life that is led by and controlled by and empowered by the Holy Spirit. Led, controlled, and empowered by the Holy Spirit so that our life is, a, is, a, is fruitful in bearing the fruit of the Spirit. That seems to be why Paul contrasts the filling of the Holy Spirit with drunkenness. Do not get drunk with wine, but rather, in contrast to that, be filled with the Holy Spirit. The effect of drunkenness is dissipation, he says. Drunkenness controls us. 
That's why we say someone is driving under the influence. Alcohol has taken the controlling, uh, uh, it has put itself in control of our cognitive and physical abilities. When we, not we hopefully, but when someone is drunk, they are controlled by their drunkenness. And the effects of their drunkenness is dissipation, which just means wastefulness. It's the same word that's used of the, of the uh, prodigal son when he goes away and he spends his money on worthless things, on careless living. That's the same word for dissipation. Recklessness, pointless spending, worthlessness. Drunkenness leads to complete recklessness and wastefulness. And so what Paul is saying here is that those two things stand in complete contrast to one another. The Christian life is to be the very opposite of a drunk life. Rather than being ruled and controlled by alcohol, we are to be ruled and controlled by the Holy Spirit. Rather than being characterized by wasteful and reckless living, we are to be characterized by the good, fruitful effects of the Holy Spirit. That's where Paul goes next, this fruitful, these fruitful effects or evidences of the Holy Spirit's filling. When we are filled with the Holy Spirit, he says there are going to be evidences of it. There are going to be things that are produced in our life. And we read first that one of the evidences of a Spirit-filled life in a Spirit-filled church is singing. Perhaps that wouldn't be one of the first things that comes to our mind. But Paul says, when you are Spirit-filled, you will sing. Look at verse 19. He says, speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody with your heart to the Lord. A vital evidence of a spirit-filled life and a spirit-filled church is the heartfelt singing of psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. Psalms refer literally to the book of psalms, what, what the songbook that God himself has given us in the psalms. And then hymns and spiritual songs likely refer to other Christ-centered expressions of God's truth through song. And notice that as we sing those things, there are two audiences. There are two audiences to whom we sing. There is a horizontal audience. He says we speak to one another with these psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. And there is a vertical audience. We make melody to the Lord We speak to one another, we sing truth to one another, and we build one another up in that truth, and we sing truth to the Lord as an offering of praise. And just as there are two audiences or two directions for our singing, there are also two instruments for our singing. We sing with our mouth, we speak, he says, that obviously implies audible expression. We speak these things, and then we sing with our heart. We sing with our mouth, and we sing with our heart, making melody to the Lord with your heart, he says. When Paul says we're to speak psalms and spiritual songs to one another, implying that we use our mouth, it's a very good and simple reminder to us that we should sing. I often somewhat feel bad for the people in front of me every Sunday, but I sing because that's what Christians do. Because it is, one, it's helpful to one another, but also because it's what God delights in. We sing because we want to encourage each other, but we sing out loud with our voices, even if it's uncomfortable for us, because we know that God delights in the singing of his people. But we must also use the instruments of our heart, not just singing with our mouths, but singing with our hearts. Singing with the heart or making melody with the heart involves thoughtfulness, really considering, thinking about the truth that we're singing. 
It also involves believing. It involves faith. When we sing with the heart, we have confidence that the things we're singing are true, that they really matter because they're true. And to sing with the heart also means we sing affectionately, with genuine delight and enjoyment in the things that we're singing. Thoughtfully, believingly, affectionately, all of our heart is involved in the expression of praise and adoration to God. So that's the first evidence then of a spirit-filled life is that we'll sing, heartfelt singing. And then second, he says thanksgiving in verse 20. A spirit-filled life produces thanksgiving in us, always giving thanks for all things in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ to God, even the Father. One of the primary contrasts between a life that is lived without the Spirit and the life that is lived in the Spirit is ingratitude versus gratitude. Paul paints this picture in Philippians 2. He says, you live as a Christian in a crooked and perverse generation. That's his terminology in Philippians chapter 2. A darkened world, a perverse and corrupt world. You live in that world, and as a believer, you're to shine like a star or like a light, he says in Philippians chapter 2. And he says, the way that you will do that is by not grumbling and by not complaining and by not disputing. How do we stand out in this world? We're thankful. We have gratitude in our hearts to God. Our sinful flesh, all of us, our sinful flesh has a natural propensity toward ingratitude. But the Spirit of God in the life of the believer overcomes ingratitude and he produces in us a thankfulness to the Lord, a genuine and sincere thankfulness. And when Paul says that we should be thankful for all things, he's not suggesting that in any way we should pretend like we're unaffected by the very difficult realities of life in this world. He's not promoting some form of stoicism or dishonest approach to our suffering. What he's saying is that when we are full of the Spirit's influence, we're able to believe the goodness of God toward us through Christ, even in the darkest circumstances through which we might pass in this life. The Holy Spirit enables us to remember and to believe that everything we experience in this world, every circumstance, is dealt to us ultimately by the loving, wise, and sovereign hand of our Father. And therefore, the Spirit enables us, by enabling us to believe that and to really be transformed by it, he enables us to express thanks to God. So another evidence of spirit-filled living is thankfulness. And then lastly, submitting. A spirit-filled life will be a life of submission. Verse 21, be subject, or literally be submitting to one another in the fear of Christ. Be subject or be submitting to one another in the fear of Christ. Paul will go on in the verses that we'll look at as we continue to work our way through Ephesians in future weeks, he'll go on to show that there are different relationships in life. And each of those relationships has a different dynamic when it comes to authority and submission. Wives to their husbands, children to their parents, slaves to masters. We could say citizens to the governing authorities. All throughout the scriptures we see there are relationships of authority and submission. But here... Paul is speaking more generally and broadly of a mutual submission that all Christians are to have to one another. The Holy Spirit makes us willing to be helped by 
held accountable by, encouraged, instructed, admonished, and cared for by other Christians. We're all members of the same body, and therefore we're all subject to the discipleship and care of one another. So what that means then, for example, is that a pastor of a church can never ignore the biblical encouragement and admonition of the newest Christian in the church merely because of his position of authority. The relationship is not equal in certain ways. The pastor does have authority in the church, but in another sense, the pastor cannot ignore the simple admonition and encouragement of the newest Christian in the church because we're members of one another. Or an older member can't dismiss the encouragement of a godly counsel of a younger Christian simply because of the difference in maturity. We're all to put on hearts of humility. We're all to be willing to submit ourselves to the discipleship and care of one another. And ultimately, we do that, Paul says, because we fear Christ, because we love him, because we revere him, because he is the head of the church. We also make ourselves subject and submitted to the members of his body. So those are three effects, then, of a spirit-filled life, singing, giving thanks, and submitting. But the question still remains, how can we be filled with the Holy Spirit? How are we filled with the Spirit? Paul's giving a command here. He's saying this is something you're responsible to do if you're a Christian. You have the obligation, according to God's Word, to be filled with the Spirit. So then the natural question is, how do we do that? How do we obey the command. Well, we could ask, does it mean that we're supposed to look for some particular spiritual experience in prayer or in a worship service? Is being filled with the Holy Spirit, in our pursuit of being filled with the Holy Spirit, does it mean that we're seeking and asking God to manifest himself in a miraculous way, in a, in a tangible, miraculous way in our times of prayer, or through some uniquely ecstatic experience in a time of worship? Is that what we're praying for when we ask for the Spirit's filling? Well, I don't think that's what Paul is talking about here. Of course, God is God, and he can move however he wills and delights and pleases to move. He could do anything in our midst whenever he wanted. But I don't think that's what Paul is commanding us to seek here. And one of the reasons I I'm convinced that that's the case, is because when Paul says, be filled with the Holy Spirit, the command is a present and continual command. It could be translated, not just be filled with the Holy Spirit, but keep being filled with the Holy Spirit, or be being filled with the Holy Spirit continuously. He's not describing a unique experience in a prayer time, or even in a church service. He's describing a manner of life that is filled with the Spirit's influence. As Ian Hamilton puts it, Paul noticeably makes no mention here of waiting for or seeking after special experiences. The filling of the Spirit is not an experience to undergo, but a lifestyle to cultivate. Now again, I am not arguing that we will not have experiences in the Christian life. What I am arguing is that that is not what Paul is commanding you to seek. He's instead commanding you to seek a life that is constantly influenced and filled with the Spirit's power. Well, the answer still is, how do we do that? How are, or the question still is, how do we do that? How are we filled with the Spirit? The answer, I believe, perhaps ordinary, but I think biblical, is that we are filled with the Holy Spirit by consistently and prayerfully believing 
and applying God's word to our life. Perhaps that sounds boring, but that's how we're filled with the Holy Spirit. We are filled with the Spirit by believing God's word day after day and applying it to our lives so that our lives are brought under subjection to his word. There's a a very similar passage to this one in Colossians chapter 3, where almost everything is identical. He says that we're to sing psalms to one another, hymns and spiritual songs. Paul says that we're to have thankfulness in our hearts to God. Sounds very similar to Ephesians. He says that we should give thanks through the name of Jesus in all things to God the Father. Very similar to Ephesians. Line by line, Colossians 3 is almost identical to this passage in Ephesians, except for one difference. In Colossians 3, the way that we speak to one another, the way that we're enabled to speak to one another, to have thanks and to give thanks and to sing, is not by being filled with the Holy Spirit there, but having the word of Christ richly dwell within us. In other words, there is a direct connection, the same kind of results Paul identifies with the filling of the Holy Spirit and the rich indwelling of the word of God. If we want the the Spirit to fill us, and to influence our lives, and to empower us to walk fruitfully and wisely in this world, he will do that to the degree that we are believing his word, to the degree that we are hoping in his word, and submitting our lives to his word, and allowing our thinking to be shaped by his word. To that degree, to the degree that the word of Christ richly dwells within us, to that degree we will be filled with the Holy Spirit. So then we've seen something of what it is I hope to walk wisely in this world. We do so by walking circumspectly. We do so by being spirit-filled. Of course, our hope or our confidence in this life is not in any way built upon our ability to walk wisely. You and I will often fall very short of a wise life. We will often stumble into foolishness. We will need to be restored. We will need to be forgiven. We will need to be set on course again because we are prone to wander. And when we do that, when we stumble into foolishness and we fail to live a wise life, we must again and again run to the only one who has ever lived a truly wise life. It would be terrible if we walked away from this passage this morning thinking that Paul is doing nothing more than telling us to live a morally wise life. If all that we get out of this passage is moral encouragement to make the most of our time and to walk wisely, then we miss the point. Our hope and our confidence is not ever based on our ability to walk wisely. Instead, all of our hope is built unchangeably unchangeably and forever upon the one who has lived perfectly wisely the entirety of his life and who died in the place of foolish people like us. Christianity is not, first of all, about what we do or our efforts to walk a wise life. Christianity is, first of all, all, about what Christ has done. The gospel is not about us trying to live a wise life. That is one of the effects of the gospel in our life, but that is not the gospel. The gospel is that Jesus Christ lived the wise life that you could never live. And the gospel is that Jesus died on the cross in your place as if he had been foolish and had lived a life of foolishness. 
And the gospel is that Jesus rose from the dead and he ascended to the right hand of the Father where the Lord Jesus now reigns in power. And the gospel is that Jesus is one day going to return in power and in glory to to finally redeem and to ransom and to bring him to himself all of his children and to bring judgment on the world for all who have chosen foolishness ultimately rather than the wisdom of bowing in faith and submission to the Son. Christianity is not about you trying to walk wisely. That's involved in it, but that is not the foundation of what it is to be a Christian. When you get discouraged in the Christian life, you cannot go back to your efforts to walk wisely. You must go to the hope that is found in the one who has walked wisely in your place. He has secured for you eternal hope. He has secured for you the favor of your Father. And even when you mess up, even when you sin, he gives you assurance that when you come to him, he is very eager to forgive, to restore to be reconciled, to love you, to accept you. Jesus is our wise Savior, and foolish folks like us need a Savior like that. Let's pray. Father, we do hope only in the wisdom of Jesus Christ. He has become for us our wisdom. We hope only in him because he's become for us only our righteousness and our sanctification, our justification, all of our hope, every ounce of our confidence is built on the Lord Jesus Christ and what he has done for us. We thank you this morning, God, that we can turn with eyes of faith to Jesus and find strength and encouragement and endurance to walk in the darkness of this world and to walk wisely. We pray that you would give us your Holy Spirit's help that our lives might be spent well for Jesus. Help us to make the most of every opportunity that's given to us day after day to redeem the time and to live for you, to promote your glory, and to, and to honor our Lord Jesus and see his kingdom advanced in this world. Father, we need your help for that. We're often distracted. We are often weak. We need your Spirit's power, which alone is sufficient to give us all that we need to walk wisely in this world. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.